A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm who are bringing you this podcast. Coming to you almost live from our studios in New York, this is Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from articles, social media, past audiobook recordings, and other spoken word projects. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you very much, as always, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. I'm Tom Zania. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about a movie that I saw a long time ago, and it's one of my favorites. And I'll tell you which one it is right after this. Miles Junction, Rust Belt, USA, where hope is scarce and hardship is a way of life. It's but one of many northeastern Ohio towns, long forgotten and left behind, its residents living on the cusp of financial, emotional, even spiritual destitution. Their lives and others are linked by a ruined yet starkly beautiful post-industrial landscape, a desolate vestige of our fractured American dream. In just the right light, is a glimpse at one region's bleak inheritance and the precarious lives of those who remain. Written by William R. Solden and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. Why do you think that is? I mean, why is that? I mean, is it just because people are, are lazy today or they're bored? I mean, are we just like bored, spoiled children who've just been lying in the bathtub all day, just playing with their plastic duck, and now they're just thinking, well, what can I do? Okay, yes, we are bored. We're all bored now. But has it ever occurred to you, Wally, that the process that creates this boredom that we see in the world now may very well be a self-perpetuating, unconscious form of brainwashing created by a world totalitarian government based on money, and that all of this is much more dangerous than one thinks? And it's not just a question of individual survival, Wally, but that somebody who's bored is asleep, and somebody who's asleep will not say no? See, I keep meeting these people. I mean, uh, just a few days ago, I met this man whom I greatly admire. He's a Swedish physicist, Gustav Bjornstrand, and he told me that he no longer watches television, he doesn't read newspapers, and he doesn't read magazines. He's completely cut them out of his life because he really does feel that we're living in some kind of Orwellian nightmare now and that everything that you hear now contributes to turning you into a robot. And when I was at Findhorn, I met this extraordinary English tree expert, who had devoted his life to saving trees. Just got back from Washington, lobbying to save the redwoods. He's 84 years old. He always travels with a backpack because he never knows where he's going to be tomorrow. And when I met him at Findhorn, he said to me, where are you from? And I said, New York. He said, ah, New York, yes, that's a very interesting place. Do you know a lot of New Yorkers who keep talking about the fact that they want to leave but never do? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, why do you think they don't leave? 
I gave him different banal theories. He said, oh, I don't think it's that way at all. He said, I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made or to even see it as a prison. And then he went into his pocket and he took out a seed for a tree and he said, this is a pine tree. He put it in my hand and he said, escape before it's too late. See, actually for two or three years now, Chiquita and I have had this very unpleasant feeling that we really should get out. And we really should feel like Jews in Germany in the late 30s. Get out of here. Of course, the problem is where to go, because it seems quite obvious that the whole world is going in the same direction. And that, of course, was Andre Gregory and Wally Shawn in a terrific little movie that I saw back in 1981. And it's one of the most fascinating and interesting that I've probably ever seen. Back in 1981, I worked at a hotel and I became friends with a guy named Greg. And we we learned uh, that we had a lot in common as to what kind of music we liked and what kind of movies and that kind of thing. And he says, hey, why don't we go see a, uh, a movie at the Bijou? Now, the Bijou was a tiny little theater in Grand Rapids where uh, there, there was a neighborhood called East Town. And the Bijou was in this small shopping center. And they used to show movies that... Uh, you know, the offbeat stuff, independent things, maybe some foreign films, that type of thing. And I used to like going there. And he he said, why don't we go see this movie? And he, he said what it was called. And I don't remember if he went into it as far as an explanation. I, I, I can't quite remember. I just remember that the movie was my dinner with Andre. Now, Many of you listeners out there have heard of my dinner with Andre and have probably seen it several times. I went to that movie not knowing what to expect. And I had never seen a movie like it. The movie is, of course, a conversation between two people. And I thought, boy, can they, can they really, you know, make this something that I want to listen to? and watch and boy if it wasn't it was one of the most interesting conversations about life about about everything career relationships and uh andre gregory the famous uh theater director of the manhattan project back in uh the 70s or the 60s i guess is when that all took place wally sean is a uh, playwright and an actor. And both of them play themselves. So they wrote the script. And everything that's talked about in the film is things that have happened to them, especially to Andre. Andre is sort of, I I guess he's the principal and, and Wally is sort of the straight man. Wally 
starts out the movie being a little apprehensive about going to meet Andre. Andre, of course, uh, had dropped out of the theater for five years or something like that. And he traveled the world and had all these, you know, weird personal experiences. And um, Wally, of course, kind of had the idea that maybe he's, maybe Andre has gone a little off the curve a little bit and uh, was a little nuts, but they meet at an elegant French restaurant and have what is the most captivating evening of conversation that I've ever heard. And that made for a very enjoyable movie. And you know what? I'm going to let Roger Ebert (laughs) in his review that I'm going to play for you right now, explain most of it for you. Okay, here it is. From RogerEbert.com. My Dinner with Andre by Roger Ebert, January 1st, 1981. The idea is astonishing in its audacity. A film of two friends talking, just simply talking, but with passion, wit, scandal, whimsy, vision, hope, and despair for 110 minutes. It sounds at first like one of those underground films of the 1960s in which great length and minimal content somehow interacted in the dope-addled brains of the audience to provide the impression of deep, if somehow elusive, profundity. My Dinner with Andre is not like that. It doesn't use all of those words as a stunt. They are alive on the screen, breathing, pulsing, reminding us of endless, impassioned conversations we've had with those few friends worth talking with for hours and hours. Underneath all the other fascinating things in this film beats the tide of friendship of two people with a genuine interest in one another. The two people are Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn. Those are their real names and also their names in the movie. I suppose they are playing themselves. As the film opens, Shawn travels across New York City to meet Gregory for dinner, and his thoughts provide us with background. His friend Gregory is a New York theater director, well-known into the 1970s, who dropped out for five years and traveled around the world. Now Gregory has returned with wondrous tales of strange experiences. Sean has spent the same years in New York, finding uncertain success as an author and playwright. They sit down for dinner in an elegant restaurant. We do not see the other customers. The bartender is a wraith in the background, The waiter is the sort of presence they were waiting for in Waiting for Godot. The friends order dinner, and then, as it is served and they eat and drink, they talk. What conversation? Gregory does most of the talking, and he is a spellbinding conversationalist, able to weave mental images not only out of his experiences, but also out of his ideas. He explains that he has become dissatisfied with life, restless, filled with anomie and discontent. He accepted an invitation to join an experimental theater group in Poland. It was very experimental, tending toward rituals in the woods under the full moon. From Poland, he traveled around the world, meeting a series of people who were seriously and creatively exploring the ways in which they could experience the material world. They, and Gregory, literally believed in mind over matter, 
and, as Gregory describes a monk who was able to stand his entire body weight on his fingertips, we visualize that man in some strange way. So hypnotic is the tale. We share the experience. One of the gifts of my dinner with Andre is that we share so many of the experiences. Although most of the movie literally consists of two men talking, here's a strange thing. We do not spend the movie just passively listening to them talk. At first, director Louis Mal's sedate series of images, close-ups, two shots, reaction shots, calls attention to itself. But as Gregory continues to talk, the very simplicity of the visual style renders it invisible. And, like the listeners at the feet of a master storyteller, we find ourselves visualizing what Gregory describes, until this film is as filled with visual images as a radio play, more filled, perhaps, than a conventional feature film. What Gregory and Sean talk about is, quite simply, many of the things on our minds these days. We've passed through Tom Wolfe's Me decade and find ourselves in a decade during which there will apparently be less for everybody. The two friends talk about inner journeys, not in the mystical, vague terms of magazines you don't want to be seen reading on the bus, but in terms of trying to live better lives, of learning to listen to what others are really saying, of breaking the shackles of conventional ideas about our bodies and allowing them to more fully sense the outer world. The movie is not ponderous, annoyingly profound or abstract. It is about living, and Gregory seems to have lived fully in his five years of dropping out. Sean is the character who seems more like us. He listens, he nods eagerly, he is willing to learn, but something holds him back. Pragmatic questions keep asking themselves. He can't buy Gregory's vision, not all the way. He'd like to, but this is a real world we have to live in, after all, and if we all danced with the Druids in the forests of Poland, what would happen to the market for fortune cookies? The film's end is beautiful and inexplicably moving. Sean returns home by taxi through the midnight streets of New York. Having spent hours with Gregory on a wild, conversational flight, he is now reminded of scenes from his childhood. In that store, his father bought him shoes. In that one, he bought ice cream with a girlfriend. The utter simplicity of his memories acts to dramatize the fragility and great preciousness of life. He has learned his friend's lesson. And a wonderful review from the great Roger Ebert, who has such a way with words uh, in his reviews, or had such a way with words for his reviews. What I want to play now is... Something uh, from the film uh, where Andre is talking uh, about his experiences, um, which is what most of the movie is. Uh, there, I, I do a little bit of, um, of Wally, Wally Shawn, but I concentrated most of my performances for this podcast on Andre because I just felt that they were well, they were just longer, and um, I, I felt that uh, I was closer to that character. So, let's listen to Andre Gregory. After that, I did a workshop here in New York. I did a few workshops, but things were somehow ending, and I, 
I guess, really, the last big event took place that fall. It was out on Montauk on Long Island, and there were only just about nine of us involved, mostly men. And we borrowed Dick Avedon's property out at Montauk. And the country out there is like Heathcliff country. It's absolutely wild. You know, even in summer, it's incredibly rugged. And there's nothing on the property. It's just a small bush forest, you know, with very high cliffs. And what we wanted to do was take the All Souls Eve, Halloween, and use it as a point of departure for something. And the idea was that each one of us would prepare something for the others, something in the spirit of All Souls Eve. And we built ourselves the shack that we lived in. And it was getting very cold out there, you know, because it was November, late October. And the thing that I prepared was... I haven't had it for a while now, but I have a very, very unpleasant dream that my grandfather on my mother's side is still alive in a hotel room on the west side. We haven't either known it or admitted it and haven't visited him all these years. And I visit him and it's horrible because I feel guilty. And so since one of the ceremonies of All Souls Eve is to welcome the dead, to bring the spirits of the dead that you love and to welcome them as you go into the dead of winter, I did something to try to bring my grandfather to peace. The others participated in it, but the big event was three of the people kept disappearing in the middle of the night each night, and we knew they were preparing something big, but we didn't know what. And midnight on Halloween, under a dark moon above these cliffs, we were all told to gather at the topmost cliff and that we would be taken somewhere. And we did. And it was cold, and we waited. And then the three of them, Helen, Bill, and Fred showed up wearing white, something they'd made out of sheets that really looked a little spooky, not funny. And they took us into the ruined basement of a house that had burned down on the property. And in the basement, they had set up a table with benches that they had made, and they had put out paper, pencils, wine, and glasses. And we were asked to sit at the table and make out our last will and testament to think about and write down whatever our last words were to the world or to somebody we were close to. And that's quite a task. And we must have been there for about an hour and a half or so, maybe two. And one at a time, they would ask one of us to come with them. Suddenly, a figure in white would appear and motion like this for one of us to come. So there were less and less people sitting at that table. And of course, the longer you stayed, the harder it was just thinking. But they gave everybody enough time to really have to somehow come to terms with it. And I was one of the last. And they came for me, and they put a blindfold on me, which is what they did, and they ran me through these fields, two people. And they had found what was a kind of potting shed, a kind of shed on the grounds, a little tiny room that had once had tools in it. And they took us down these stairs, and the room was filled with very harsh white light. 
and they told me to undress and give them all my valuables. And they put me on a table, and they sponged me down. Now, I just started flashing on death camps and secret police. I don't know what happened to the other people, but I started to cry uncontrollably. And then they stood me on my feet and took photographs of me naked. And then naked, again blindfolded, I was run through these forests again and thrown down into a kind of tent made of sheets with sheets on the ground. And there were all these naked bodies and huddling together for warmth in the cold. And we were left there for about an hour. And then one by one, again, one at a time, we were let out, and the blindfold was put on, and I felt myself being lowered onto something like a stretcher. And the stretcher was carried a long way, very slowly, through the woods. And then I felt myself being lowered into the ground. They had, in fact, dug six graves eight feet deep, and then I felt pieces of wood being put on me. I mean, I cannot tell you, Wally, what I was going through. And I was lowered into the grave on a stretcher, and then this wood was put on me. My valuables were put on me in my hands and they had stretched a sheet or canvas about this much above my head and they shoveled dirt onto the grave so that I really had the feeling of being buried alive and after being in the grave for about half an hour I mean I didn't know how long I'd been in there I was resurrected, lifted out of the grave, blindfold taken off, and run through the fields. And then we came to a great circle of fire with music and hot wine, and we, we danced till dawn. And at dawn we filled up the graves to the best of our ability and went back to New York. And that was really the last big event. That was the end. I mean, I began to realize that I just didn't want to do these things anymore. And this second one uh, is, of course, with Andre and also with Wally uh, right at the end of the film. You see, I think that's why people have affairs. I mean, you know, in the theater, if you'll get good reviews, you feel for a moment that you've got your hands on something. You know what I mean? It's a good feeling, but then that feeling goes very quickly. And once again, you don't know quite what will happen next, what you should do. Well, have an affair, and up to a certain point, you can really feel you're on firm ground. There is a sexual conquest to be made. There are different questions. Does she enjoy the ears being nibbled? How intensely can you talk about Schopenhauer at an elegant French restaurant or whatever nonsense it is? It's all, I think, to give you the semblance that there's firm earth. But have a real relationship with a person that goes on for years, well, that's completely unpredictable. Then you've cut off all your ties to the land. 
and you're sailing into the unknown, into uncharted seas. People hang on to these images of father, mother, husband, wife, again, for the same reason, because they seem to provide some firm ground. But there's no wife there. What does that mean, a wife, a husband, a son? A baby holds your hands, and then suddenly there's this huge man lifting you off the ground. And then he's gone. Where's that son? All the other customers seem to have left hours ago. We got the bill, and Andre paid for our dinner. I treated myself to a taxi. I rode home through the city streets. There wasn't a street, there wasn't a building that wasn't connected to some memory in my mind. There I was buying a suit with my father. There I was having an ice cream soda after school. When I finally came in, Debbie was home from work. And I told her everything about my dinner with Andre. And, of course, that was Andre Gregory with uh, Wally Shawn coming in there at the end. Two wonderful actors and writers and people of the theater uh, in what I think is a, an original, unfamiliar, and probably the only film of its kind uh, movie that uh, I hope you will see if you haven't seen it. I know many of you have. But um, it's a great one. My Dinner with Andre. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends. Be sure to email me at tomreadsyourstory at yahoo.com or call 929-260-1952 if you have questions or comments about the show. As always, thanks Anchor.fm for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.